laying in the dirt, laying in a manger when he should have had a crib of gold, right? And that's why we come in and why we celebrate. And so uh, today I want you to know, like, there's, there's always this pressure on pastors when it comes to Christmas about what, what am I going to say? Um, what, what can I say that's going to be deep and profound, something that you haven't heard, something that you haven't gotten out of the Christmas story. Uh, there's, there's just a lot of pressure there. I know myself, I've heard 40 plus uh, Christmas sermons in my time. And so, yeah, there, there's pressure trying to come up with something to say. But, but like I said earlier, we just want to dive in to the Christmas story and, and tell it for what it is. Tell it for the glorious truth that, that God uh, reveals to us. And so, uh, it, it's hard sometimes because so many of us, we know the story. Like even if you are um, not a regular churchgoer or something, like even non-church people, they know some of the story of the Bible, right? They know from popular culture. The other day we were watching uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, one of the, the newer versions, the animated versions, and they're in the middle of the Grinch. They're singing, God rest you merry gentlemen. Right? And so all around us is the Christmas story, whether or not we go looking for it. And so sometimes our familiarity with it, it can breed boredom, right? That there's this natural tendency sometimes, despite our best intentions, to where we don't lock in to that story quite as well as we should. And so I know from a personal example, we used to read the Christmas story before we opened presents with my dad's family. And so I remember growing up just like, how fast can I read through this? Because when I am done, I get to open presents. And so I don't know that that was quite the right attitude to take, but that's how we view sometimes when we think about the Christmas story. So today we want to be intentional with Christmas we want the reminder of the old story that it's not just about some cute baby lying in a manger that makes us feel better this time of year. But we want to see the beauty of God's sovereign plan for us, how it takes the entire Bible to tell this story and how every part of Scripture is pointing to the death of this baby, and that's for our redemption. And so like Caleb said last week, that we can't have Christmas without the cross. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 20. And so this is what God's Word says. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee from a city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to, to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For, did, for today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with 
the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. <clears throat> when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they had made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your indescribable gift that you gave yourself for our redemption. Lord, none of this would fit our expectations, that you would give up your glory to be born as a man, that your birth would lead to your death as a display of your grace and your love for us. Lord, we ask that you help us to focus in today by your Spirit, that we would be reminded of the goodness of the gospel, and that and that our wonder would lead to worship of you today. So we thank you for your grace, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so let's look again at verses 1 through 5. It says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a, cen that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And so right off the bat, we want to see that this is God's sovereign plan. This is God's plan from eternity past that he did not have to figure out some way in order to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, but this is part of a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so look at Micah 5.2. Look what Micah prophesies about the coming Christ. He says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so we want to see that God ordained worldly events to bring about Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. He used Roman rule in this instance. Uh, they called a census. This was for the purposes of taxation. This is the first uh, recorded instance of the IRS ruining everybody's life, making them all move. But he used this decision by the emperor to lead to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So this was not an accident. And so if you remember back to your time in history class, the Roman emperors, they thought themselves as divine. They thought that they became gods when they became emperor. And so isn't it ironic that Augustus thought that he was divine, that he was a god, and yet he has no clue that he is being used by the one true God to fulfill God's sovereign purpose. And so look at what the ESV Study Bible says. It says, on the surface, political reasons determine where Jesus is born, but the ultimate cause is the God who controls history and who guarantees that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. And so we clearly see God's sovereignty 
at work. It's clearly evident. And so we also see in these verses that this is also a fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David to establish his line forever because Joseph is from the house in the line of David. And so this goes back to Psalm 89, verse 27. And this is what the psalmist says. He's speaking of David's descendants. He says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of kings of the earth, the highest of kings of the earth. And so God himself is establishing a better kingdom, a superior kingdom, and it's not in the political sense. We know that the Jews in this time, they were waiting for a Messiah to come to free them from outside foreign rule, but, but God is not establishing this kingdom in order to defeat the Romans. He's saying that my king, my Messiah is coming, he is superior to Caesar, and he will establish an everlasting a spiritual kingdom that will never be shaken. And we saw this a couple weeks ago in Daniel chapter 7, where this huge stone representing the kingdom of God coming and smashing all other kingdoms of the world. And this kingdom will never be destroyed. It will never be shaken. And so even today, when you think about it, there's not a country today, there's not a superpower that will be able to stand against God's kingdom. And so look at what the expository commentary says. He says, what was true of the historical David is fulfilled in a more profound way in the greater David, that being Jesus. We see a typological relationship between the first David and Jesus, and such a relationship fits with the promise of the Davidic covenant that the Davidic dynasty will be everlasting. The reference to Psalm 89.27 suggests that Jesus' sovereignty over all kings even Augustus. And at this time, who would have thought, even, even Caesar, would have never thought that his kingdom would have ever ended. But it did. And so all of Israel is awaiting this next David. This is who they have been waiting for. And God says, I'm giving you something better than David. And I'm going to do it in the most strangest of ways. And so look again at verses 6 through 7. Luke writes, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So we see that Jesus is born. He's placed in a manger, which is the common feeding trough for animals. We have no idea where he was actually born. There's no mention of a stable. It just says that there's no room in the inn. But again, all of this goes against expectation. All of it goes against what our expectation would be. Who would expect for a king to be born and placed in a manger? Who would expect that the promised Messiah would be born and placed in a manger? Who would expect that the Son of God, the Son of God, would be placed in a manger? That's humble for us to imagine, right? That is... It's humble for us. We don't even put our own children in a manger, much less a king. And so think back, though, to Mary's song from Luke chapter 1 in the Magnificat. This is what she says. She, speaking of God, she says, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So this is what our God does. He does not need earthly splendor in order to accomplish his plans that our God, he brings down the mighty and he exalts the humble. 
And so look at what Kent Hughes says. He says, no child born into the world that day seemed to have lower prospects. The Son of God was born into the world not as a prince, but as a pauper. We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and where it always begins, with a sense of need, a graced sense of one's insufficiency. Christ himself, setting the example, comes to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. So let's look at verses 8 through 14 again. It says, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And so we see these shepherds, and so some commentators, they would argue that at this time, shepherds were kind of a despised people. They were viewed as dishonest or as thieves, even though God himself identified as a good shepherd in Psalm 23. And so there's some disagreement about where shepherds fall in in the order of society. But whatever that reality is, what we want to see is that these shepherds, they were insignificant when it comes to society. They didn't stand out for any reason. They were basically nobodies. And so God revealed himself to these nobodies. He didn't inform the nation of Israel. And so we want to remember that it has been 400 years since the last prophet of God has spoken to the nation. That's what we looked at last year in the book of Malachi. There's a 400-year gap from Malachi to this moment in history. And so the entire nation, they're waiting Because God has been silent for so long. They're waiting for something to happen. And yet God doesn't announce that the Messiah has come to the nation. He's only announced it to these lowly shepherds. He's not announced it to a ruler. He's not announced it to the priest or to the nobility. He's announced it to these lowly shepherds. And it's announced by the angel of the Lord. And we see the glory of God is revealed when the angel makes this announcement. And that causes fear and it causes dread on the part of the shepherds. And this is a typical response that all throughout scripture, when we see people encounter the glory of the Lord, they respond with fear. Think back to Isaiah chapter 6 when he is in the midst of the temple and he sees the entire Glory and presence of the Lord fill the temple. Do you remember what Isaiah says? He says, woe is me. Woe is me. And so the shepherds are filled with dread. They're filled with fear. But the angel calls for them to rejoice because God is accomplishing his will. And he says that this is good news of great joy. Right? This is good news of great joy. And this good news, that's where we get our word translated, the gospel that this is a big deal, that the gospel is realized in Jesus' birth. And it's announced with great joy. And so why is this joy? Why is this such good news? And that's because it's the joy of our redemption. 
But we want to remember that our redemption, we know the rest of the story, that our redemption actually required death. That even though redemption would involve the death of the Son of God, the gospel is still announced with a sense of joy and wonder. That even though this baby was born to die, the angel still announces it with great joy and says, this is good news of great joy. And this good news is for all the people. This is a big deal. This is why you and I are here. This is why we get to celebrate. Because it's not just for the Jewish people. It's for the entire scope of humanity. That salvation is not limited to a specific group of people. If you look throughout human history, it's littered with division. It's littered with separation of who's better, whose team am I on, whose side am I on, who's better. But God says that this is for everyone. I'm not limiting my salvation. And so the angel announces that Jesus, he bringing that salvation, that he is the Savior, Christ, the Lord. And we have three titles there. The first one being the Savior. And so the Jewish people at this time, they would have thought of the Savior as the one who was coming to free Israel from oppression. Again, thinking about the Romans. But really... Jesus is coming to free us from the oppression of sin and death because Jesus is better than any earthly savior. And so Romans tells us that we are the spiritual Israel, that we are Israel not by birth, but because of faith. And so as he comes as a savior, he is freeing us from sin and from death. And the angel tells us that he is Christ, that's translated the Messiah, that he is the anointed king of Israel. He is the long-expected one. He is the one that whom we have all been waiting for, that he fulfills the covenant promises made to David, just as we talked about, that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. But he is also Lord. He is God himself. This signals his deity, his divine nature, that he has the same status as God, the same identity as Yahweh, that we're going to talk about that in just a minute. And so the angel says, hey, I'm going to give you a sign. He says, there's a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And so we have this beautiful, this glorious announcement, and it's given with a humble sign. Again, not what we would expect. We'd expect that the king, the Messiah, the Lord himself would be born in a palace but the angel says, hey, you're going to find him in a manger. And the, the, the shepherds, they don't seem to think that it's very strange at all. They don't think it's strange. And so consider what Kent Hughes says. He says, the one who asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, now himself lay wrapped in swaddling clothes. And so think back to that episode with Job at the very end of Job where God shows up and he begins questioning Job and he says, hey, were you here? Were you here when I created the foundations of the world, when I created the earth? Were you here when I said, hey, water, stop right here and go no further? That very same God that is there questioning Job is now laying in that manger let that sink in for a minute. It just blows my mind that the Almighty God himself, the one who created everything that we see, is there 
lying in the manger. And so then the angel, he's joined by a heavenly host. This is God's army. God's army, thousands upon thousands of angels beyond count. And they have a message. That message is first glory to God. It's upward. It's praise for God because what he has just done. And second, it's a message that goes outward. Peace on earth among men with whom he is well pleased. And so that goodwill goes outward to man secondly after it goes upward to God first. And so we remember from Isaiah 9-6 that Isaiah prophesies that Jesus will be the Prince of Peace. And he is the Prince of Peace because he brings us the peace of salvation that we are no longer enemies of God because of our sin. And so this is not universal. That doesn't mean that everyone's going to be saved. But he gives us this free gift as God calls us to himself. God is calling us to him, and we respond. And so everything that we're seeing here in Luke chapter 2, this, this humble birth, this glorious announcement, every bit of it goes against every expectation that we would have. That if we were writing this story, our story would not look like this. That God goes against our expectations to bring his son into our world. And so Paul gives us some clarity in Philippians chapter 2, which Micah read for us earlier. And so keep your finger in Luke chapter 2 and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Because I want us to see everything that's happening in Luke that Paul is explaining for us. Just what the depth of the significance is that God himself came down into our world. So this is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count the quality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul writes this, this passage, it's what's known as the hymn of Christ, and in it we see the fullness of Jesus. Even in this little baby, we see the preexistence, the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the glorification of Jesus. That everything that Jesus' birth is pointing to is summed up right here. It demonstrates the full purpose of Jesus that we see here in Luke. And so Paul teaches us that Jesus did not hold on to his equality with God. Remember back to John 1.1, where John tells us that Jesus, the word was with God, the word was God. And so here Paul is saying that Jesus is in the form of God. That, that word form, that means that it is, that he is the true and exact nature of God, that he is the essential and unchanging character of God. And so Paul is teaching us that Jesus is equal, that he is the same thing, possessing all the same qualities of God, that he is the visible expression of God's invisible glory, and that he emptied himself. He emptied himself, and so this is not subtraction, 
It's not that Jesus gave up his divine nature. It's not that he gave up his deity or his godness. But this, this word emptied himself means that he is divesting himself of position and prestige. And so if you think of divesting yourself, uh, a lot of times we think of that in terms of the president. If we elect a president, he comes into office, and if he has his company or something of that nature, he is supposed to divest himself of that. He puts it into a trust so that as he operates as president, that he doesn't work for his own gain for his own company, right? And so that's what presidents do. It's not that that company is no longer theirs, but that it's been set aside for that period of time. And so that is what Jesus has done, that he has divested himself of his position and prestige, that he became human without giving up his divine identity, that he did not hold on to his privileges as the Almighty, he didn't hold on to them at all cost, that he didn't exploit or take advantage of his deity while he was here. And so Augustine describes it this way, He says, Christ emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to him what he was not. And so the expository commentary says it this way. It says, the only way for the Son of God to take on the form of a slave was to enter this world and be born as a man. Therefore, the pre-incarnate Son of God divested himself of position and prestige, not by subtracting deity, but by adding humanity and becoming the God-man, both fully God and fully man. And so we see this reality here in Philippians. We see it in two parts, which we just alluded to. The first part, he took the form of a servant. And so again, that, that word form, it's the same word that was used earlier. And so that means that Jesus took the exact form of a servant, took on the nature and qualities of a servant. And secondly, he was born in the likeness of man that he gave up his heavenly glory to be clothed in humanity. And so here's the significance of that. He took the form of a bondservant, the ultimate humiliation, because becoming a man, that was humiliating enough compared to his glory. Even coming as a king would have been humiliating for him. And yet he came as the lowest form of a man, that his love drove him to a position of weakness in order to save us. And so it's a big deal that he became a man. It's a big deal that he became the lowest form of a man, but it's a bigger deal because of what he came to do after that, that he humbled himself obediently to death on a cross. And so when the Bible uses that term humbled, Paul uses it there. It's a term that's associated with someone who has given up their status as a free person and has become a slave. They have, um, they, they have a debt that they can't pay. And so in order to satisfy that debt, this person humbles himself and becomes a slave. And so that's what Jesus here has done. So Jesus did not demand justice for himself. He willingly subjected himself to persecution. Again, this is not what we would expect, that becoming a king would be degrading enough for Jesus if he came as our idea of a king. Becoming a man and becoming a servant would be degrading enough as it is. But Jesus took it one step further by dying for us, and not just any death. This was the death of crucifixion, which is the ultimate indignation. 
when it comes to execution because the, the criminals that they, they use for this, they were viewed beyond contempt. This was the most extreme humiliation for any criminal. And so the Romans, they were intentional with this. They were diabolical with this. They intended crucifixion to be the absolute destruction of the person. Their goal wasn't only to just kill the person. Their goal was to absolutely shame the person. And so that's what Jesus took on. He bore the curse of sin. He suffered the awful wrath of God through, curse, through crucifixion as an atoning sacrifice for us. And so this is the ultimate counterpoint to the divine majesty of Jesus as the Son of God. That this is the ultimate expression of Christ's obedience to the Father in his sovereign plan. And so the lowest point is not too low for Jesus to demonstrate his love for us. That the lowest point is not too low for Jesus to demonstrate his love for us. And so this is why Jesus then is worthy of our praise. It's not just because he was born, but it's because of his death. And so look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 45, verse 23. This is God speaking. He says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And so Paul is bringing us in connection with Isaiah. And so in Isaiah 45, Isaiah is telling the people that everyone has to turn to the Lord in order to be saved. But the interesting thing about Isaiah 45 is there's no answer given for how that's to happen. There's no answer given in Isaiah 45. But then in Isaiah 52, Isaiah tells us that God's suffering servant will suffer for the sins of the people. Isaiah 52 gives us that answer for how people must be saved. And so Paul takes those two elements and brings them together here in Philippians chapter 2 and says that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 45 and 52. This is what Paul is teaching us, that the basis of his exaltation, the basis of why we praise him is his humiliation, him coming as a man, and his death on the cross, that we will confess Jesus as Lord, that being the Greek translation of Yahweh, that we will confess Jesus as Yahweh, God's personal name. And so what Paul is doing here is he's applying what could only be applied to God. He's now applying that to Jesus. And so our praise is now equated and given to Jesus because he is fully divine that he is from God, that he is God, and that Jesus, in his death, exercises his authority in the name of Yahweh. And Jesus' work is all to the Father's glory. It demonstrates his perfect submission to the Father's sovereign plan. And so look at how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians 15.28, this perfect submission. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. And so because of this, we see 
the universal reign of Jesus over heaven, over earth, over everything under the earth. That includes angels, that includes humanity, it includes demons, it includes Satan, that all will confess his praise either by choice or by defeat. And so that's everything that we see in this simple birth announcement from the angel, what Luke is writing to us about Christ's birth in Luke chapter 2. So go back to Luke chapter 2. So we're going to read verses 15 through 21. So Luke writes, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Not the, not the angel, but the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, who he was to be. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. And so we see the shepherds, we see their immediate response. They go and find the baby. They've probably left their flock, left it in the field to go find this baby because they are so eager. And they find everything just as was told them, just as was promised. And so then we see their response. Their first response is they start telling everybody about this. Not just that this little baby was born and placed in a, in a manger, but who this baby really was and what he was coming to do. And then they glorify and praise God. The very first instance of the fulfillment of Philippians chapter 2. And so they start praising him because of what God has done, that he has done what he said that he would do. And so that brings us to our application today. So as we look at this Christmas story, as we look at, at this, we want to wonder at the gospel because this story never gets old. That this is the good news, that this is why we celebrate, that God loved us despite our sin that he made a path for our redemption from before the foundation of the world, that Jesus would give up his heavenly glory to become a man, that he would humble himself and be born into this broken world, that he would become a servant to us, that he would die our death as our substitute, that he would be crushed on the cross for us, that he would defeat death and be raised to life, that he would grant us new life in him, all by his grace, and all to his eternal praise and glory. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. That is more than just a cute story with a cute baby and a cute little nativity scene. It's more than just our tradition. It is the Son of God becoming a man and bringing us life through his death. And so we must wonder and marvel at this Christmas story, that it is the gospel, the good news of our salvation, the love of God on display, and every bit of it points to our redemption through the cross, even as it goes against every bit of our expectation, 
It's glorious. And so look at what the expository commentary says. It says, The Roman orator Cicero once said, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. This shows the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. The cross was far from the thoughts of Rome citizens, but near to the thoughts of heaven citizens. Meditate much on the cross. Behold how the lowest point of Christ's descent displayed the highest peak of his love. Jesus went from the highest place of heavenly blessing to the lowest place of earthly curse, death on a cross. Why did he have to go so low? He had to come to where we were in order to rescue us. If someone falls into a pit, it does no good to meet them halfway. Our rescue from sin and death required Jesus to go all the way down to where we were, enslaved in complete condemnation. The Son of God left the courts of heaven and laid aside his crown to bear the dreadful curse on the cross. So that's what we remember at Christmas. And that leads us into our second application, that our wonder at the gospel, how we marvel at that, that leads to our worship because of the gospel. That our understanding of the gospel leads only to worship. That when we realize what God has done for us, when we realize the great love that he has for us that compelled him to leave his throne and to step down into our world, that when we realize that he saved us by his grace when we couldn't save ourselves, all of that motivates our worship for him just like the shepherds who left everything. They ran to Jesus, and they praised the Lord, and they told everyone who would listen how the promises of God were fulfilled. And so this, this reminds me of Andrew Peterson's song, Gather Round. It's from his Behold the, the Lamb album, his Christmas album, and I love how he captures both of these elements that we wonder and are amazed at the gospel, and because of that, we worship but Andrew Peterson, he writes, I want to share the lyrics. He says, gather round, you children come. Listen to the old, old story of the power of death undone by an infant born of glory, the son of God, the son of man. So gather round, remember now how creation held its breath, how it let out a sigh and it filled up the sky with the angels for the son of God, the son of man. So we sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing. He gave up his pride, and he came here to die like a man. Therefore God exalted him to the place of highest praises, and he gave him a name above every name, that at the very name of Jesus, the Son of God, that we would sing out with joy for the brave little boy who was God, but he made himself nothing. He gave up his pride, and he came here to die like a man. So in heaven and earth and below, every knee would bow in worship, and every tongue would proclaim that Jesus, he reigns with the angels. And so that's what we're going to do here in just a moment, that we are going to worship. We are going to worship through communion. And so the last line in the reprise of that song at the end of the album, it points us to communion. It says, so rejoice, ye children, sing. That is us. We are the children. Rejoice, ye children, sing, and remember now his mercy, and sing out with joy, for the brave little boy is our Savior. 
And so we remember now his mercy, that Jesus, as that little baby, as he grew up, his body was broken for us on the cross, that his blood was poured out in a new covenant for us. And so we remember his mercy and his grace, which he displayed on the cross. And because of that, we sing out with joy. Because when we take communion, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are called to proclaim the Christ's death until he comes and returns again. So we're going to sing out with joy. We're going to remember his mercy. And so we consider this baby born to die for us. We marvel at the gospel and we worship because of this gospel. So stand with me as we pray. Lord God, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you came to die in our place, to pay a price that we never could pay on our own. So Lord, we ask that you help us to marvel at your gospel, that, that we would be amazed by your grace, that we would never tire of the story but that we would rest completely and totally in your goodness. And so because of this, God, help us to worship you now. We ask that our praise to you be loud, that it be never ending. And so we give you all the glory, both now and forever. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.